This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Gwaith Smith. Gwaith is a real estate investor in New York who focuses on acquiring properties out of his state over in Pittsburgh. He'll tell us how he was able to acquire a commercial deal off-market with no prior experience while still holding a full-time day job. He'll also tell us the nightmare story of closing on the deal with his lenders, something that many of us have experienced. And make sure you stay until the end to hear Gwaith's pro tip on how to succeed in anything you want. Enjoy. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are and how you got into real estate investing. Sure. Uh, my name is Gwaith Smith. Um, I got into real estate investing about five years ago or so. Uh, purchased my first duplex in Pittsburgh in 2016. And from there, I purchased a fourplex in 2017. And most recently closed on a 13 unit in uh, this past September. So choosing Pittsburgh as a market was um, really the work of my wife. That's where she's from. And that's where we had the connections. And we just started growing from there. And currently working on getting into some larger syndicated deals um, on the general partnership side by way of raising equity. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the first few deals you did and how you decided to move into these bigger deals? Yeah. So I probably started like most people do. I uh, was on bigger pockets and I was looking for a way to basically earn income outside of my nine to five. So I'm a prosthetist by trade, uh, meaning I help people with limb loss. I make design and fit prosthetics and it's a very re- uh, rewarding job, but it's a um, It's a very time restrictive job. Uh, You know, I'm pretty much at the office by six in the morning and I'm back home by five in the evening. And it's the main source of my income. So, you know, I'm always a pretty conservative guy and I've always been into investing and I've always wanted to have other streams of income just in case the worst case happened, um, you know, with my W-2 or with another source of income. So, you know, research led me to real estate investing and specifically multifamily. And, you know, we were looking into it, uh, me and my wife, and we decided that we would try to buy some place in Pittsburgh. Uh, we had family there. We had some boots on the ground there. And I was introduced just to a residential broker. And she was awesome. You know, she, um, it wasn't her full-time job, which, you know, everybody will tell you, you know, don't work with a broker who it's not their full-time job. But she looked at multiple places for us. and. You know, a lot of times she would say, you know, this one isn't worth it. You know, don't bother. So when the time came where she said, you know, I think this one is worth it, I kind of, I, I believed her. So uh, at that point, we had our friend who's a contractor go and, and look. And, and if he verified it, um, you know, we basically started negotiating. And that's how we got our first two um, buildings there, our duplex and our fourplex through that broker. Very cool. So right from the get-go, you were already doing multifamily. You didn't do single-family homes? Never did a single-family home. You could you could go back about, uh, let's say, 14 years. I owned an apartment in New York City, and I had moved out to Arizona to be with my uh, now wife, then girlfriend, and I, I rented it out. But that was not, you know, I, that wasn't as intentional as what I do now, so I don't count that. 
when you say apartment, you mean like one building, like one unit? One apartment unit. I, I owned a studio apartment in a co-op and I, uh, it. I leased it out. I subletted it. And, um, but again, I don't count that as, as the start of my real estate investing career. I, uh, that was sure. uh, situational. How long ago did you, you know, start going on bigger pockets and start deciding I'm going to start investing out of where I am? Yep. So that, so that was probably, you know, four years ago. Um, you know, I started looking into it about five. I probably got on bigger pockets about four. And then, you know, the, yeah, it was pretty quick with, with the first purchase. And, uh, and the first purchase was, you know, nothing went smoothly for us on it. We made a lot of mistakes. Um, but it led to the second and then it led to the bigger one that, which was the third. What's the third one? So the third one was the 13 unit. Um, we closed on it in September of this last year, and that was through a, a true commercial broker relationship. And, um, and it was an off market deal. So, it, you know, it's kind of hit all the boxes that you're, you're taught to look for, um, when looking for bigger, when I say bigger, you know, middle size apartment buildings. Um, if you'd like, I can tell you a, bit, a little bit about how, how I found an off-market deal through a broker because that was not easy. Sure. Especially because you're not even in the commercial world, right? You have a duplex and a fourplex. Yes. And you're not even in the area, right? You, where do you live again? Correct. Yeah. I'm in New York. How far is that from Pittsburgh? About 400 miles. That's quite a drive. No, it's, it's quite a drive. Luckily, I had a, a partner on the on the Pittsburgh deal. We had done some we had done some other things together. We had done a couple private loans. We got into a flip together, and I was one to sort of push the looking for an apartment building. So I had somebody as boots on the ground, but it was me who was trying to to broker a broker relationship. And so can you talk about a timeline real quick? So yep. you started four years ago. Maybe a couple of months later, you got your duplex, and then did you wait another couple of months to get your fourplex? Yeah. So the, the fourplex was real. that was bam, bam. So that was end of 2016. I got the duplex, same relationship um, with that residential broker, the fourplex came about and the fourplex was a very easy purchase. Um, we got along great with the sellers and it was just, it was seamless. And then when did you close on the fourplex? The fourplex we closed in January of 2017. So it was only, so funny. yeah, only like three months after the duplex. I have the same story pretty much, but with Jacksonville and not Pittsburgh. Okay. <laughs> and then there was a bigger gap then to the 13 unit. The 13 unit, you know, it was probably a good, you know, a year and a half. So if I- What were you doing during that time? Um, making sure that the first two um, were serving as a proof of concept. So, you know, making sure that they were running efficiently, that everything was smooth there. So I wasn't about to kind of throw everything into it until I could prove it. And mm -hmm. there was a time where- you know, there was a time where the renovations on the duplex were taking longer, costing more, and you know, we we weren't feeling as confident um, to move forward to another. Uh, but once that was, you know, then I really wanted to grow and get bigger. Awesome. All right, let's go back to your thirteen unit deal. It's in Pittsburgh, right? Yes. Okay. Are you using the same crew, same property management team? So the property management, no, we ended up self-managing the duplex and the fourplex. We had a property manager and that was not a great situation. Um, that in itself is a story. I mean, long story short, we were always wondering where the money was. We were always trying to contact her to find out what was going on. We had a tenant call us and basically said that the fire department was there. They've been trying to get in touch with the management company. There was a leak. 
management company ignored it, said that they couldn't get in touch with the owners, which was a lie because we never heard anything. And basically that leak hit, hit a wire or something. And there was an electrical fire when we called the property manager to ask her, you know, she at that point realized that we weren't moving forward with that relationship anymore. And we just found that it was much easier managing the tenants than it was managing the manager. So ever since that time, we self-managed the um, duplex and the fourplex. Now we had to have a third party management team for the 13 unit because that was agency debt and that was required as part of the loan. With that said, the first management company that we used um, has since been transitioned to a new. And I, th I think we're finally in a good place with management. But yeah, management was a, was a challenge throughout. Go ahead and talk about how you even found it in the first place. Okay. So th this part's pretty interesting. So like I said, I was looking for a bigger building and I called the brokers that were listed in Pittsburgh and nobody really answered the phone. I would leave messages. I really wouldn't get a return phone call. I would send an email with buying criteria. I really wouldn't get much information back. So what I started to do was to look on their individual brokerage sites. You know, they would have on-market deals listed um, through their specific brokerage site. And if I saw one I liked, I would call and I would ask, um, you know, some more information about it, ask for an OM and just to speak with somebody. It was usually an associate broker who would call me back. So I never got to speak to the lead broker um, until there was this one property that we really liked. It was a 15 unit and we decided to submit an LOI on it. And when we did that, we were finally contacted by the lead broker. Uh, we had some good conversations about the property. Uh, we felt pretty good about it. The LOI went back and forth um, a couple times with the seller until it was finally accepted. And, you know, we signed the LOI, uh, the, the seller agreed to the LOI, and we started to uh, create the purchase and sale agreement. In Pennsylvania, it goes by the agreement of sale. So um, we had worked all that out. We had negotiated that where both sides agreed. Um, so me and my partner, we signed, we sent it to the broker who was going to bring it to the seller. And all of a sudden we got radio silence. And a couple of days later, I, I called the broker and I asked if, uh, you know, what was going on? How come the seller hadn't signed yet? Uh, you know, he basically said, you know, he didn't know he was having a tough time reaching the seller as well. I think it was close to a week that went by when I got a phone call from the broker and he told me that the seller had an exclusion in his contract with the brokerage and that the brokerage doesn't usually accept exclusions when they make contracts, but in this situation they did. And the seller was given every opportunity to exercise his exclusion. It looked like it wasn't going to happen. So they felt comfortable to market it. And that's where, you know, we came in. This was an on-market deal through the brokerage. And um, what ultimately happened was that the broker thinks that the seller used us to raise the price on his exclusion. And the broker said that he wanted the deal to go to us because he's obviously getting cut out of the deal as well um, with the... Uh, with the seller going to his exclusion, but that in all honesty, he would probably give the broker something for, for the troubles. You know, the thing is we're, we're out now. So at this point, the, the broker, you know, he was apologetic. Um, he asked me, you know, what I was looking for. You know, I, I kind of laughed to myself because I was like, Oh, you know, I sent you that email a while back and uh, <laughs> told some other people. 
but I gave him my buying criteria and he said, you know, if, um, you know, if something becomes available, I'll, I'll definitely reach out, you know, I apologized again. I said, okay, you know, I guess it happens. And it was probably about three weeks later, I got a phone call from him and he said that, you know, he felt really bad about how the last deal fell through and that he has a, he has a potential deal. He wasn't sure if it was really for sale, but that's kind of how it worked in, in that area. And, uh, he said, if we were interested that he would try to get some information and just see if the seller or potential seller would be interested in selling. And I said, sure. You know, the, the area was a great area. It was right next to where my wife grew up. And, um, you know, I basically said, yeah, you know, if, um, we'd love to get some information. And that was how we kind of started the process of this one. Can you explain the whole part about exclusions? Because I, you kind of lost me there. So the seller, because this is the broker, right? He is his listing. So what's the exclusion do? So the, in, in his listing, um, I guess the contract basically says, you know, you, we will sell to anybody that you bring, bring us to the, or bring to this deal with the exception of John Doe. So I guess what, according to the broker, the exclusion was that he could bring anybody into a deal except a certain person that the seller wanted to exercise himself. I don't, I don't get that. So he knew who you were and he said, I don't want to sell to you. Yeah. So he, so he might say, for instance, he would say, you know, I'm, I have a guy that, that might be interested in buying this. So I'm going to sign a, I'm going to sign a brokerage agreement with you. But if my person, if, uh, you know, like I said, if John Doe wants to purchase, ultimately wants to purchase this, I I'm able to sell to him, you know, without going through the brokerage. Oh, got it. Got it, got it. And and like I said, the, he said that they rarely ever do that. But in this instance, it was one person, and they they basically made him exer- They made him try to sell to him first before marketing it. Um, but I guess you know some people don't don't operate with the uh, the same ethics I do. Basically, the seller already had a person in mind that he was going to sell it to, and basically market it in public so that he can kind of raise the offer with this other person. Yes. And, and the fact that we had signed an LOI, set a price, agreed upon a price, we feel that he went back to that person and, and said, this is, what the, this is what the market is. So if you oh, want I it, see. you need to beat this. I see. Gotcha. Thanks for, thanks for explaining that. Okay. Let's talk about this off-market property. What were the specs on it and why did you decide this is a good deal for you guys? So it's a 13-unit property. Um, they're all two-bedroom, one-bath units. Um, the value add was that it was under-rented. It was in a great location, and we were able to do unit renovations to fetch a rental premium. So all units were what you'd consider classic units, and the overall condition of the property you know, seemed good so that you know, there wasn't a lot of deferred maintenance. Okay. And what were they renting for before? The average rent at the time of purchase was $905 a unit. You know, we looked into what going rates were, and in our projections, we projected them to be uh, $1,050 a unit. Our first two unit renovations, our first two lease expirations have yielded $1,150, so we're beating that projection by, by $100. Congratulations. And how much are you putting in each unit to fix it up? So each unit is a little bit differently. The first unit um, was probably going to be one of the more expensive ones. That ended up being about $5,800, um, and the second unit is undergoing right now and that looks to be a lot cheaper at about 3500. So we we pretty much underwrote at 5000 a unit and I think we expect to be about there. 
and this is like a what B class neighborhood or what kind of building is it? So I would call it a I would call it a B neighborhood. Um, if you're going strictly by year built, then it's a, then it's a C, but it's a you know it's a solid you know solid brick building with with little deferred maintenance and uh, great curb appeal. So, what year was it built? 1964. Okay, and does it have like flat roof or is it pitched roof? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a pitched roof and um, roof was not terrible. I have to go back and think, but the the roof is within eight years, I think. Okay. So you know how like when you purchase something, there's always so many different ways to calculate the valuation. Because mm-hmm. even though it's supposed to be, you know, like net operating income divided by cap rate, well, what's the cap rate that you use? Also, what's the NOI do you use? You use the past 12 months or trailing three or yada, 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 yada. So how did you underwrite that deal? So for the cap rate, we purchased at about low six. It was like 6.2, which is, you know, kind of going rate for, for that area. Um, and that class, you know, if you were in a, in a different neighborhood in Pittsburgh, you know, you can get up to those 10 caps and whatnot, but that's not where, where this is. We did the cap rate off of the, off of the T12 on the purchase end, but we, you know, we used our, our assumptions. So like what our insurance cost was going to be, uh, what our property management was going to be. So we took, you know, we took the revenues of the, of the T12 and then made certain assumptions on the expense side, uh, to calculate the, the cap rate. Okay. So you bought it at 6.2 of your assumption numbers, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's so many other things to do with um, purchasing multifamily properties. I remember when I was trying to do it, anything under an eight cap was very hard to, to get like that 1.25 DSCR, especially, you know, with interest rates going at like five or five and a half percent. So how did you fund this deal? So we were able to get um, Fannie Mae uh, lending on it. Um, okay. So we got a, it was a one-year interest only, 10-year term, 30-year amortization. And our interest rate is at 5.12. So I don't know if you remember back in, in September, there was like, there was like a, there was a jump in interest rates. So when we were going through the, you know, the whole process of finding funding and everything, our initial quote was we were going to be right at five, probably a little bit under five. And then there was, there was a blip. Uh, that happened right when, you know, they were going to committee and we were locking the rate. So the rate ended up being a little bit higher than we were originally told. Like there there were a few surprises there, but it didn't break the deal by any stretch of the imagination. Got it. So it's 5.12? 5.12, yep. And how much did you guys put down on that? So we ended up, um, we were originally supposed to be at 80%. Um, and I think we ended up at 82% because loan proceeds ended up being a little bit less than was um, originally thought. 82, what? That was the leverage. Um, Percent? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. We, I'm sorry. I'm backwards on that one. We <laughs> ended up being 22% as opposed to- Got it. So 78. Got it. Yes. Okay. okay. So 70% of LTV of purchase price. And that allows you guys to have your 1.25 DSCR? Yeah, so we were oh. we were in there at 1.25 DSCR. We we might have been like a, just a touch above at 1.26 if I'm not mistaken. No. No, it was 1.25 because that was that was the I think that was the reason on the uh where where loan proceeds were were brought down a little bit. I think we originally thought we were higher than that and when it came down to it that's, you know, they underwrote a little bit differently. They they underwrote with um with a payroll 
And even though we don't have payroll, I guess they, they had to put it in. So it kind of changed the numbers a little bit. Did they force you guys to take whatever money you were going to repair and put it into an escrow account as well? Yes. Yeah. So we, we had to do that. We elected to put an extra 6,500 into a repair escrow that would yield 8,000 uh, within the loan. And then there were certain things that we needed to fix in certain time frames that were also withheld in the loan. You know, one mm-hmm. of that was uh, putting GFCIs in, in every bathroom. Uh, we have some, some parking lot paving that we need to do. And there was an electrical issue in one of the units. So, you know, certain things were put in escrow. We had three months on, on some of those items and then 12 months on the, on the parking lot paving issue. Cool. How did you fund the down payment? That was, we personally funded it, me and my partner, we went in 50, 50 and we just, you know, we had some, some money to, to use and we put it in ourselves. So what is your buying criteria now? Like, what are you looking for in a property that says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and execute on this versus nah, next one, move on. So in my, in my uh, you know, my quest to kind of, to grow what I'm doing, to grow the business, I'm, I'm really, I really kind of switched focus a little bit where I want to have two things running in parallel. I want to build the, the personal portfolio of what I call it, which is, you know, buildings like I'm, I'm currently in. But I also want to run down the syndication avenue as well. Um, so for the personal portfolio, I'm, I'm looking to up it to about a, you know, the next one to be a 20 plus unit building, at which point I would look to JV with, uh, with some other people. At the same time, I'm looking to get into a syndicated deal on the general partnership side uh, by way of raising equity. Cool. How are you going to do that? You know, I, I live in New York. Um, so part of the reason why I, I don't invest in New York is because of the returns. And, you know, it's it's just more profitable in my mind to invest out of state. But being in New York, we are around a lot of money. So whereas raising money maybe isn't my my comfort zone, so to speak, it, it's the it's the hand that I'm dealt. So, um, you know, I have the network here that I can, you know, try to utilize and you know, that's where I feel I can bring value to an operator. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm in the exact same situation. I'm in the Bay Area, California. So prices here don't really make sense. There are people doing it. I don't really know how. But a lot of opportunities are out of state. So go ahead and tell me, like, what are your plans? How are you going to get to that money raising stage? Well, I invested as a limited partner in a couple deals down in uh, DFW. Um, uh, those are going really well, so I'm familiar with the uh, with with the whole strategy and and some of these value added plans. And really, it's just connecting with uh, you know with people who are comfortable bringing on you know somebody to help raise equity and somebody that I'm comfortable with as an operator, and uh, you know and just seeing how we can help one another. So probably the first step is you'll reach out to the guys that you invested in and say, hey, how can I help you next time? Do you need do you need help raising money for your next deal? And they say, yeah, yeah help me raise a million dollars. Okay. They present you a deal. You say, these are the good numbers. And you start going to your circle of friends or colleagues and say, hey, here's a deal that I have. Do you want to invest in this deal? Exactly. And, and educating them about investing as a limited partner and, you know, gauging interest and, you know, just going to networking events and, and talking about, you know, what we're doing. And, and hopefully, you know, once a, a relationship is, is there, you know, you can, you can approach them with a the deal. You know, another one of the reasons why I, I get into this and, and why I do that is because these deals aren't available to everybody. So, 
especially if you're not an accredited investor. So I have a lot of people within my network that would love to invest in some of these deals that, that I was able to invest in, but they don't have a pre-existing relationship with somebody on the sponsorship team or they're not accredited. So they're not going to see those opportunities. Um, now, if I'm on that general partnership side, I can make them aware of those opportunities and I can invite them to invest as a sophisticated investor or accredited mm -hmm. if that's what they are. So what are you looking for in a deal that says this is good? Like numbers wise, are you looking for a certain? So I'm, I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for a strong business plan. I'm looking for a strong operator. I'm looking for a strong market and I'm looking for safety. You know, I'm looking for something that might have multiple exit strategies. I'm looking for um, something that's proven, um, you know, something similar to, you know, what I'm investing in um, and something that, you know, shares with the investor. So you know, a lot of what you see out there is a 70-30 split, maybe an 8% preferred return, um, you know, and, and bonus depreciation and tax benefits being, you know, shared equally with the, um, with the limited partners. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Are you looking for a specific return, like an IRR number or? Yeah, I would say IRR, you know, it's, it's an interesting time right now, I think. I think that People have been doing really well um, and they've been getting some really good IRRs, you know, over 20%. I feel where we're at in the market cycle, I think we need to start tempering those expectations a little bit. So, you know, I'm comfortable with somebody coming in, being conservative in the underwriting and saying, well, this one's a, you know, this is a 15% IRR, this is a 14% IRR. And if you look at the underwriting and you see, you know, you see a reversion cap rate, you know, significantly higher than the entry cap rate, or you see... You know, you see an estimation of um, a vacancy, you know, a vacancy jump year one. You know, these are some of the things I look for in terms of how conservatively it's underwritten. And, um, you know, for that reason, I would say, you know, probably that that 15 percent, you know, IRR, uh, but with a lot of cushion to hit it. OK, sounds good. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So do you want to talk about some of your horror stories that you've encountered or where you've seen people fail the most? Sure. So, so the 13 unit definitely, uh, definitely did not go smoothly. So, uh, let's, uh, I guess I can share, you know, one of the horror stories there was that the lending ended up taking longer than, than initially thought. So one of my biggest goals going into this deal was to really be somebody that's easy to work with, with the broker. I was looking for, you know, the long game here. I, I wanted this this building to basically be a proving ground to working with the commercial brokers, being real easy to work with, not coming in and retrading and, and setting myself up for future deals. So with that said, the second, you know, we had an LOI on it, I was already reaching out to a uh, mortgage broker that I had used previously and letting him know the deal. Um, he was always telling me that, you know, me and my partner look great on paper. Everything was moving along. You know, we're, we're ahead of the game. You know, we're trying to get him everything fast. So long story short, once we're in our agreement of sale and, you know, I'm thinking things are at a certain point, you know, they really weren't. And what ended up happening was he brought somebody else on. Um, that person now sort of became my main contact. And I'm trying to figure out you know, what's going on here, what their partnership is. I'm starting to think that I'm now dealing with two brokers and going to be paying two broker fees. Um, and we're not even two, we're not even two 
you know, the person or the, or the company that's going to be underwriting and, and going to be lending on the deal, which is the agency debt. So, you know, once we get there and we have this, this conference call, and at the time I'm on vacation in, uh, in South Carolina, I'm at the pool with my kids and I'm fielding this conference call. And I'm, all I'm asking is what are your closing costs? You know, how much is it going to cost? What is this acquisition fee going to be on, on your side? That's, I just, I need to know, like, what is there an origination fee? Is there a, what are we looking at? And I could not get a straight answer. Um, I just couldn't get a straight answer. So I called the, the first broker afterwards and I said, Hey, you know, that commerce call didn't really go that well. I said, I, you know, I asked the same question a bunch of times and I think everybody just kind of skated around it and we never really, we never really got an answer. And he was like, I agree. I agree. She didn't handle it well. Um, we're going to have the, um, you know, we're going to have the documents to you in, in a couple of days to look over everything. Everything should be there. So a couple of days turns into more than a couple of days. And basically long story short, by the time we see the fees, there was a, there was like a 3% brokerage, you know, there was like a 3% fee. And on top of the loan, on top of the loan, on top Just of the loan. 3% for being a broker. Yeah, for the most part, because there were two brokers now. So, you know, there was a there was a phone call that, that happened after that uh, that wasn't, you know, terribly pleasant. And I, I basically said that, you know, the deal doesn't work now, you know, because it just uh, now it doesn't pencil out. So, you know, this, you know, everybody's working this deal quite a bit. And, and I'm pretty much here saying, like, this isn't happening. I can't I, I can't make this work. How can, how can we make three percent work plus a one percent origination fee plus all this stuff? That's your down payment already. Yeah. <laughs> so the second broker gets on, you know, I get her on the phone and she's telling me that the initial broker who was somebody I'd worked with came in saying that he wanted a straight 3% for bringing me to them. And this, like everything was a, he said, she said, um, I immediately started like scrambling and I'm calling, you know, I call somebody I met on bigger pockets who, you know, who worked for a company, a direct Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lender. And I call him and that voicemail basically went to say that that person doesn't work there anymore. And if you, you know, you want, you can contact this person. So I contact that person. Um, I tell him the story. We go over everything real quick. And, and I'm like, we basically like, we got to close in, you know, whatever it was, uh, however many weeks. And he's like, well, that's not happening. And he's like, you know, I'm like, well, the other people tell me they can do it. He's like, well, we can't. He's like, that's not happening. I was like, all right, let me see what's going on. I get a phone call from that second broker who basically says that I went around her and went directly to her lender on this. Now, I had no idea who her lender is. It was just coincidence that I ended up calling the company that they were going to use. And I, and I guess people talk, but he was not the loan originator. So it was a nightmare. I called him back and I told him what happened. And he's basically like, listen, you can go with who you want. It doesn't matter. You know, he's like, this, let me just tell you what your terms are going to look like. He told them what they were. There was 0% origination fee. So I get back on the phone with her and I'm like, hey, not for nothing. But, you know, if you're working with the same people, then why is this guy telling me I don't have to pay an origination fee? And you're telling me I do. And then I got your fee on top of that. And I'm like, and there was nowhere anywhere where you told me or it was written down as to who your lender was. You know, I'm basically reaching right. out because I can't do it under your terms. And I never got that, you know, that closing cost from you. So, uh, you know, long story short, she says, let me, I'm going to contact my originator there. He drops the, the 1% origination fee. Her fee goes from 3% to 1%. I'm like, okay, well now we're penciling back out, you know, 
I can, I can make this happen, but I don't like how everything's went down just so you know, but, um, we kind of went from there and, and we closed, but that, that whole, that whole process, you know, there was, a there was, I still don't know all the answers as to why things happened the way they did. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I won't be, I won't be working with them again. I'll tell you that. So at the end of the day, basically you closed with them. You didn't go with them direct the other people directly. I didn't go. I didn't go directly. I, I I was told that you know even though nothing you probably not allowed to. Would, you know I was I was trying to go like the ethical route here and and maybe against my better judgment. I, you know I'm not sure, but it, it worked on the one percent. That's what I originally kind of underwrote. Um, mm-hmm. But trying to get you know extorted. Like, I know I've had I've had a similar experience with some lenders in the past, and it's not a it's not fun when they promise you the world. And the very end, they drop the ball, or something like that. And they stop pick up your phone calls. It's yeah, like, because it it's, makes it's it makes worst. you look bad. You know that this whole time you're you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to be easy to work with. And, and then the next thing you know, you're scrambling and and your deal's at risk. And now your window to close is at risk. And and we mm-hmm. had to get a you know we had to get an extension. And and luckily we did. All right. So what would you do if you had to start all over again? Like imagine today, you go bankrupt. You have nothing. Nothing. No network either because you moved to somewhere else. What are you going to do? What are your plans? What, 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 route, what route would you take? Well, I would say that, you know, kind of the best opportunities that, that have happened to me have come through conferences um, and events um, and, and, and networks, whether that's on social media or that's going to somebody's event. I, I've just met people that have helped me and I've been able to get involved in, in, in ventures. So I would, I would start there. I would start by just being genuine. I would start by knowing my goals. I would start by having a vision and, and just getting real clear about that. Um, you know, clarity is key. And, uh, you know, once you're clear, it's easier to, to kind of back into, um, a way and, uh, and just, you know, become clear. So I'm going to ask you, personally this is your goals your vision your clarity what are you doing step by step so i'm you know i'm basically looking to create an intentional lifestyle i'm looking to create time with with my family and my kids um my w2 as i said it's a rewarding job but it's a very time consuming job um I don't want to trade all of my time you know for money forever and then you know be at 65 years old, um, looking at retirement and looking back of the things I missed, you know, I want more experiences. Um, I, I got four kids and, uh, you know, a lot of days I, I get home, I get a couple hours with them before they're going to bed and I'm out the door well before they're waking up. So, um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's funny to, to say that this is what I'm working for because what I'm doing now is, is I'm doing all this extra work, which takes even more time away to get to that end game. So that's why I'm doing it. And that's how I'm doing it. So you said that you are focusing more on, let's say, getting into syndication, yeah. right? Being on the general partnership side. And imagine you starting over. You're going to go to networks. You're going to talk to someone that's syndicating right now. Yeah, I'm going to talk to everybody. I want to find out what what they're doing. Um, I want to see how I can help um, at all. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in the go-giver. Um, I'm a big believer in that book. And I, and I feel that if you, if you just give, that all kind of comes back to you. And, uh, 
maybe not right away and you may not see it right away, but if that's your mentality and that's how you operate, I feel that, you know, good things will happen. So a lot of my listeners are on the younger side and they don't know what kind of value they can give to other people. So what, what can they, like say they want to do exactly what you're saying. They're going to meetups. They see this guy killing it. What do they even say to them? How can I personally help this dude who's already doing so much? So that, that, that's a great question. And that is something that I struggle with as well. And I, uh, you know, I noticed that, that, you know, talking to people that I know are, are very successful is intimidating. Um, I, I think the best advice I can give is, you know, just, just be genuine, you know, be, be engaging, you know, be funny. Don't, don't think too hard about talking about an investment or, or how you can help just, you know, kind of see where the conversation goes. And, you know, I recently connected with, with some people at an event and we were talking about family. We were talking about having kids and my story of, you know, me and my wife had two kids, uh, 14 months apart and we decided to have a, you know, try for the girl. And that ended up being twin boys. So we, we have, you know, four boys and that, you know, that whole story, it was, it was engaging and, and we're laughing. And, and this guy who's, you know, at a higher level than me is telling me that he has one kid and his wife wants another. And I'm saying, well, you know, be forewarned this, uh, you know, <laughs> you might get two. So, uh, you know, just, just being genuine and, and, and not forcing a conversation about, you know, how I can help you. I think that'll, you know, I think that will kind of work itself out. Um, and, and maybe it comes down to clarity. Maybe it's figuring out where you can add value. So like I said before, and you said being from the Bay Area, me being from New York, you know, maybe raising money isn't what we want to do, but that's where we found we can add value. So, you know, it's a little bit different for everybody. I think you just got to do a little bit of self-reflecting and, and you got to you got to be genuine and, and you just have to, you know, see where, you know, where your strengths are. Um, but it's tough. I, I won't lie. It's a tough question to answer. I mean, I'm struggling with the same thing right now, too. Yeah. And you mentioned the book, The Go-Giver. I've heard of it from someone before, but I haven't read it myself. Do you want to give like a quick synopsis of the whole point? Yeah. Uh, don't ask me for the author because it's escaping my my mind right now. Um, but it's okay. They can just type in Go-Giver and find it. Yeah. Um, so it's basically a story. It, it's a short book and it's a story about somebody who's... Um, uh, he's a salesman and he's, he's trying to land a contract and all he cares about is, is landing that contract. And he meets somebody and that person puts him in, in touch with a very, very successful other person. And, and the story just kind of evolves into, you know, how a successful person takes this, this young guy under his wing, but, you know, tells him he just got to trust in him. And, and he's, introduces him to other people and he sees how these people built these businesses and, and they built these, um, you know, they built these experiences and it, it all happened by giving. So somebody introduced somebody to somebody and, you know, he ultimately, somebody like the, the big kahuna, if you will, didn't end up going with him and, and his company. And he said, you know what, maybe this person would work for you. And it all just kind of came back in the end. So it's just, it's a great story about, about giving and, you know, and how that's the way that, you know, that's the way that people succeed. I totally agree with that. Find a way to add value, give before asking and yeah, yeah it'll all come back. Yeah. Awesome. Agreed. So how can people get in contact with you? Um, I'd say email is the best, uh, the best way. Uh, my email address is my first name, uh, Gwaith, which is spelled G W Y 
E-T-H at rustic-capital.com. You can also go to the website, which is currently under construction, and contact us there as well. Perfect. Is there anything that you'd like to say to everybody else before we end the show today? You know, just uh, just kind of go back to clarity. I, I think um, I think getting clarity. I think kind of stating a goal, seeing what your why is, is the start. Um, and that too, I mean, it's easier, easier said than done, you know, to, to figure out, you know, what your why is. And, and from there, I, I think things start falling into place a little bit easier. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Sean. I, I enjoyed it. Here are some of the key takeaways I got from speaking with Gwaith. It's totally possible to do great deals out of your area, as long as you have someone on the ground that can help with the day-to-day operations. If you want to succeed in anything, be a go-giver. Just give and add value to someone who you want to become in five years. And you don't approach them like a starving person looking for scraps, but instead come across as someone friendly, someone who can relate to the other person. Talk about your commonalities and basically be friends with that person. Talk about your kids, talk about sports. Do some reflection and get that clarity of what you want to do and where you can fit in. Be genuine and you will be successful. Hope you all learned a lot. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks and have a great day.